Welcome back. It's that time again. It's Flat Out RC podcast time. The podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis and drones. My name's Andrew Sill coming to you from sunny Melbourne, Australia. What a show we've got for you today because we've got a bit of a champ on. Uh, Andrew Mayer is joining us uh, all the way from Adelaide. And why is he joining us? Well, he's coming on to talk to us about his experiences at the latest F5J glider event, where he actually performed extremely well, as did the rest of the Australian team. So we're going to find out all all about that event, which is very exciting. Uh, Really enjoyed my chat with Andrew. So stay tuned for that. But before we get to that, let's have a look at what's been happening around the traps. Well, there's a lot happening around the traps. If, if you live in Australia, especially in the uh, southern states or down the my neck of the woods, uh, the weather's really good at the moment. Uh, well, it's getting better. It's our, uh, So we're coming into some peak flying time. So there's a lot of events that are, are happening. Uh, you know, We've got the IMAC uh, National Champions, Championships happening um, later in October. Uh, but there's some other events that uh, have come across my bow um which one will i go first and look at the date here warbirds over bansdale november the 4th and 5th it's the cup weekend uh if you haven't been to this event it's a good event especially if you're into warbirds it's a great warbird event i did go there last year actually uh but it's uh november the 4th and the 5th that's the saturday and sunday i believe and but the the, the gates are open from the third to the seventh so a lot of people Love to go down to this Bensdale Club, which is a bit out of uh, Melbourne, uh, about a th- two and a half, three-hour drive, depending on where you're located, out to Bensdale. But, gee, it's a good club. Uh, the guys down there do an excellent job. So if you're into warbirds and you want to see some great air, uh, warbirds flying, look, to be honest, when I was there last time, there were more than warbirds, warbirds flying. But if you've got a warbird, we'd love to see it down there. Uh, entry is $20 per pilot, public is is allowed to go and have a look as well. It's a gold coin donation uh, to go and have a look. So it's Pilot's Choice Awards for biplane, monoprop, and other military. So if you've got a jet, that's a warbird. You can bring that as well. Camping is $10 per night. Catering on site, barbecue, fire pit, hot showers, you name it. People that go down to Bensdale love it. So keep that on your, pencil that in your diary, 4th and 5th of November. Uh, for the Warbirds over Bansdale event. And there's another one. Uh, this one's close to my heart because I love a good aerobatic event. The Chukamoama Model, Aero, Model Aero Club is running the Echuca Aerobatic Smackdown, the 18th and 19th of November. Uh, fun fly event for all types of aircraft, but uh, bring your aerobatic planes and fly some loops and rolls. Uh so it's good to see an event for, for the aerobatic, a fun fly event for the aerobatic community because um, often, yes, there's uh, IMAC competition, pattern competition, that kind of stuff, but there's not much out there for the lovers of aerobatic flying. They just want to get together and fly some aerobatics, no matter how good or bad you are at it. I'm hoping to attend this event and fly some aerobatics at an average level, but look, at least I'll be there and have fun with some mates and stuff like that. So that's going to be on the 18th and 19th of November. Uh, registration fees, $25 per pilot. Pre-register is only $20. Uh, see the club Facebook page. Um, if you go to the Echuca Moama Model Aero Club Facebook page, head on down there, join the page, and you'll see some information about 
the Aerobatic Smackdown, 18th and 19th of November. I think there's a registration. Well, I know there's a registration form because I did it. So um, there's a registration form just to fill out so you can pre-register and uh, so they know who's coming so they can cater effectively. 18th and 19th of November. So get on down. Now, speaking of events, um, I had... uh, I talked about the Shepherd and Mammoth event when I was there last time, um, uh, well, last podcast episode. And, um, gee, it was a good event. And I, I did a video. If you haven't had a look, go and have a look. Uh, and it's performed reasonably okay. So some people obviously liked it. Um, I want to have a look now. Uh, it's over 10,000 views of uh, of um, the video, which is good. Um, just... 10,437. Now, what's interesting, uh, like most of those numbers, here's a bit of insight into YouTube for those people that are thinking about becoming YouTubers. One, there's not a lot of money in it if you're a uh, aeromodeler content creator because we just don't have a massive audience. But um, unless you like doing crash videos, which take a lot of effort because you've got to go to a lot of events and be filming a lot of planes flying just in case they crash. Uh, but, um, you know, I was... I was looking at the looking at the video and a bunch of comments and stuff like that. And there's a lot of different styles of videos that are out there that uh, Aero Modelers produce, um, and a whole range of you know we've got some great ones. You know, with lighter lighter side of RC is great. Martin Pickering, they're probably my two favourites. They produce some really good content. But what I've realised is that it's very subjective what people like in a, in a, in a, in Aero Modeling content. Some people listen to a podcast. Not a lot of people actually listen to a podcast, but some people like getting onto Facebook and having a look what's going on. Some people love going to YouTube and seeing different styles of videos, whether they be build videos and that kind of stuff. Um, the kind of video that I like to produce is a bit different. I always like to be a little bit different. Like instead of joining the herd, how do you add to the mix of content without replicating or, or copying other people? And the easy thing to do is just, you know, grab a phone and go and film some stuff and film some planes, fl- planes flying around. But my approach is how do I produce a piece of entertainment that might be a bit entertaining to watch, maybe a bit, a bit of a different angle and that kind of stuff. And I don't say always nail it, but um, you know, how do you produce something that is adding to the pool? And what's interesting is, uh, you know, we talk about promoting the hobby and, and producing content is a good way of doing that. Um, if we can get it beyond what I call the captured audience, you know, people that are actively flying model airplanes, you know, I can honestly say that most people that listen to this podcast are flying model airplanes. Uh, it's just what happens. But um, what's interesting about the YouTube statistics from the latest video is that most of the views have come via YouTube recommending the video to other people. So it goes a bit beyond uh, the normal reach of subscribers and things like that. Most of the people that listen, that watch the videos aren't subscribers. So if you do watch the videos, just press the subscribe button so I can sort of get a gauge as to how many people are liking the content, whatever. But uh, the last video had 183 likes. The biggest complaint was that I, I had music playing over the sound of the Mocky Radials. Come on, guys. You heard a Mocky Radial. You know what they sound like. And it's just not the kind of video that I produce. I try to... I find that... Um, as time has gone on, I have a lot of difficulty in, fly, in watching flying videos of planes. They just get boring for me. I'm not saying for anybody else you might enjoy them, but for me, I just they're very hard to film model planes flying because they fly so far away, especially at a scale event. The best model plane um, flying to video is actually 3D aerobatics because they keep it a bit closer in and 
and there's a lot of movement in the flight, whereas scale planes will fly circuits. And sometimes I'll be flying at 200, 300 feet. And it's very, very hard to film some at 200, 300 feet. If you look at someone like Martin Pickering, the way that he flies, great. He's, he's an entertaining pilot. Ellie Machinchi loved seeing his jet flights and stuff like that. But most of us are just flying circuits around and it's it, it, it's not that entertaining. So what you'll notice with a lot of my videos and I've got flying sequences, it's takeoff and landings because the rest you can't see. You can't pick up on the camera effectively, hard to stay focused, and there's not a lot of movement in the shot. It's just planes flying around at a, at a great height. So I sort of mix it up and try to share, you know, when I go to an event, share the essence of an event of what's going on. Uh, you know, some of the planes, some of the stories that m- might have happened at the event, that kind of thing. So something a little bit different, I hope. If people like it, all well and good. If they don't, well, we're not making much money out of this, so it doesn't really matter. We're not doing it for cash. We do make cash other, uh, uh, other ways. But I really enjoy getting out to the field and capturing the moment. And what's good is uh, I've been doing it for, for long enough now that I can go back in time and I can see you know, stories from events and reminisce about the event that I went to, whether it be in China or people that I was with. And capturing that moment on on a video camera is great. And fortunately, nowadays, we can do that through our smartphones and things like that. So I don't know about you guys, but my phone's full of uh, memories. That's why I think when we lose our phones, the, the, the worst thing is, oh, we lost the photos. Back up your photos, people. I've got an Apple iPhone. I sync mine to iCloud, so I can always access them. So good way to go anyway if you haven't get on the flat out rc youtube channel take a look at some of the videos you might like some of them but uh tell me always happy for feedback send me a message tell me what you think if you think i should do something differently i'm all ears because i'm not perfect almost but not yet well it's my favorite time of the podcast where i talk get to talk to a guest it really is my favourite part because I, I really enjoy that time of just sitting back, having a chit-chat with a fellow aero modeler. Some, some of them I have met before, some of them I have. Today's guest is Andrew Mayer, and Andrew Mayer has uh, been on before because he's a, he's a gun uh, glider pilot, and I'm a big fan of gliding. And Andrew did really, really well at the recent World Champs for F5J. F5J is powered glider. It's a you know, four-metre wingspan, you know, uh, competition class glider that uh, is an electric motor to get into the air. But I'm going to let Andrew talk to you about all so you can learn all about uh, the F5J competition. But suffice to say, Andrew Mayer came third in the World Championships and the Australian team, I think it was fifth or something like that. So the whole team did an excellent job. And I always love to hear people's adventures when they when they go overseas to compete at these, these kind of events. So... Send a message to Andrew. Said Andrew, I need to have you on the podcast. I want to hear all about it and share it with everybody. So, let's go to my chat with Andrew Mayer talking about the recent F5J Gliding World Championships from Bulgaria. Well, he's not in Bulgaria. They were in Bulgaria. He's back in Australia now. So here it is, my chat with Andrew Mayer. Well, it's my pleasure to have an Australian RC glider pilot that has achieved some great stuff on the world stage. Andrew Mayer, thanks for joining me. No problems. Good to speak to you again. Well, we've got a lot to cover because you've been to the F5J World Champs in Bulgaria, so we're going to have a bit, bit of a deep dive. Uh, but what have you been up to? Um, well, I, I actually haven't stopped uh, 
I haven't stopped travelling since I've come back from the uh, from the World Champs. Um, I've actually just got back from the from the US. I was over there for two weeks, and then Indonesia the week before that. So um, life has been uh, been pretty busy since I got back from Bulgaria. No doubt that's for work. Yes, yes. Unfortunately, that's for work. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so um, I'm uh, hoping that uh, I get to stay at home a bit on in October. Yep. Well, uh, it's a bit like that. We've done a gone through a period of a lot of travel. You, you look forward to just staying at home for a while. But uh, look, let's get into it. You went to the F5J World Champs in Bulgaria. Uh, straight off the bat, uh, what did you come? What was your finishing position? So I finished up uh, third overall in the fly-off. So that got me a uh, um, FAI bronze medal, which um, was really fantastic. It is fantastic. It's actually an excellent achievement, which um, you know, pretty chuffed that you've done that. Uh, so let's go from the start because to end up third place in a world championship event, it just doesn't happen overnight, does it? This is years of preparation, no doubt. Yeah, I think it's certainly um, uh, it's certainly for me. Uh, I think it's my fourth world championship that I've that I've been to. Um, and I think you learn a little bit more about, you know, how do you compete? How do you get yourself organised? How do you get over there? How do you travel with models? Um, all of those sorts of things you sort of learn as you go on. And I think, um, you know, I guess my my experience has has, uh, um, has increased over time. Um, and yeah, I'm sure that that helps uh, getting up there in terms of the uh, um, in terms of the overall rankings. So um, yeah, it's definitely been a, a journey to get to this point. Yeah, okay. So preparation for this World Champs, when did it sort of begin? Um, so for me, I was I was actually, uh, um, I actually didn't get into the team. I got only got into the team because uh, um, one of the other uh, members dropped out. Um, so I found out about that in, um, when would it have been? Uh, probably February or March of this year. So um, I really didn't have a, a huge amount of time to uh, to get organised. Fortunately, um, I have uh, uh, had enough models, um, so I didn't need to go and go and find any models. Um, so there was sort of minimal preparation from from that side, um, which was really good. Um, and uh, I had uh, you know boxes to transport models, and um, really it was about. Uh, Really, about, it was about booking tickets and and working with the uh, the other two guys on the team, Marcus and Nick, um, and our team manager Les, um, just to try and work out, you know, what were the logistics, how were we getting there, where were we were staying, um, and uh, yeah, that was the that was the main part of the preparation, as well as um, trying to do as much uh, practice as I can. Um, I think one of the big challenges that we have as as Australians going to the northern hemisphere and competing is that, you know, we're coming out of uh, the middle of winter, um, so for us it's not really the you know the optimal time of year for thermal flying. Um, but uh, you know the the Europeans are all in the middle of uh, European summer, so um, you know there's it's it's sort of difficult, I guess, in some ways to to go and practice um, in the sense that you know conditions are not ideal. Um, but uh, I guess that that worked in our favour in some ways as well. Yeah, it's true. Okay, what model did you take? Or ha- first of all, how many models did you have to take, and what models did you take? So um, I uh, I flew plus X's um, from Vladimir Models, um, and so Vladimir he's based out of the Ukraine, 
Um, and so I haven't been able to get any models for some time um, because of the, the ongoing war in the Ukraine. Um, and I, so I took the, the models that I, that I had. Um, I carried five models across. Um, for the actual event, we could only, uh, only register three models. Um, but uh, yeah, I had uh, I had five models there. Um, uh, based on talking with other people who'd flown at that at the particular field that we were at, um, we sort of understood that you know the weather was likely to be windy. Um, so in the end, you know, we have all of these very very light uh, F5J models. Um, it was actually I only actually took one of my very light models, um, which is uh, you know normally the thing that you would try and take the most of. Um, for the sort of uh, light European air, so and then that turned out to be the uh, be the right decision as well. Okay, so five models you took over. That's um, and they all fit in one case. Yeah, so the the uh, box that I have is um, about one and a half. Well, it's one and a half meters long exactly because this this box was made for um, discus launch models, um, and about. I guess it'd be about sort of 40 centimetres by 40 centimetres on one end. Um, and that fits in five models, um, sort of all broken down. Um, and that's about, that seems to be about the standard sort of size model box that that, that people have. Um, if you, if I really pushed it, I could probably, probably fit in six, but um, uh, five was a, was a pretty comfortable um, thing. Fortunately, these models, you know, they're four metre wingspan, um, they have three-piece wings, they have multiple-piece fuselages, um, so they really do break down pretty well. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty easy to to pack them in. Um, there's always a, a few moments of terror when you, you know, you take your model box up to the uh, the airline check-in desk and, you know, push it down the, the mm-hmm. oversized baggage belt and you sort of hope that you're going to see it on the other end yeah. um uh, but so far you know i mean i've traveled overseas with models a number of times now and um you know i've never really had any problems so um as long as it's as long as it's clearly labeled it seems to make it through the system yeah it's always a fear of mine I, i've had to do a bit of travel for work carrying camera gear to shoot videos and things and i i, I get paranoid about uh stopovers or things like that and I, my preference is always that if i can you know if it's close enough have a direct flight not you know Absolutely. to get to malaysia go via singapore because then that's a, an opportunity for things to go missing so um yeah i feel the pain i think but i always say that if if, if i ever was able to compete at a world championship i always say gliding is what i, what I do because the models are lighter and probably a bit easier to transport than the, the scale guys. I really feel for them, you know, with their big scale models and stuff like that. It's, uh, you know, they've had their challenges. Absolutely. The okay. Yeah. So, so you took the, took the models over there. Um, you're training before the event. Is there any sort of regime that you followed or was it just a matter of just getting some airtime? Um, so I did, uh, I did a bit of my own training um, just in terms of the, you know, some of the key skills that, uh, that I needed to work on. So, you know, just doing landing practice, which is just simply hand launch a model, fly it around and land on a spot. Um, so I did a bit of that on my own. We had a couple of team practices where, um, so Nick and I, uh, we're both based in Adelaide and uh, Marcus was in Melbourne. So Marcus came over um, a couple of times and we had um, some weekends out on the uh, the field down at Malang. Um, and that was good. Um, and most of, the, <laughs> most of that actually was... Um, uh, you know, we play a game called How Low Can You Go? Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And um, basically, the 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 idea is uh, you launch. Um, you know, everybody tries to stay as low as they possibly can. Once it's clear that you've you've engaged with a the thermal and you're starting to get away, um, you know, we we call we call it back down. That could be within you know within a minute or two after you after you launch. Um, and then uh, the uh, uh, the winner, the person who launched the lowest and, and sort of got away in the thermal, um, they get a point. Um, and uh, it's surprising how long it takes to get up to uh, to get up to five points when you've got three people who are all really going for it. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, that was sort of the um, that was sort of the key key training uh, pieces. The club, um, my club, Southern Soaring League, was really supportive as well. Um, they put on a couple of other uh, club events for us, um, so we uh, we flew in those. Um, as well to uh, give us a bit more uh, practice. So, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much the uh, the training regime. Yeah, okay. It's a bit interesting because, you know, there's a lot of skill involved in glider flying, and it's not just about flying the glider but reading the conditions and, and stuff like that. So um, it's interesting that, you know, you're doing – glider touch and goes in a kind of way to uh to brush exactly. up my skills it just shows you there's always something to be working on really no matter what discipline you fly uh okay Absolutely. So, so getting to the event how did you get there of course there must have been a, a stopover somewhere yeah so we uh we flew adelaide to doha and then um doha straight into into sofia um uh picked up a picked up a rental car in sofia and then um Drove sort of southwest of uh, Sofia um, to Dukenitsa, which is the uh, the town uh, where it, where the event was. So um, that's about sixty kilometres outside of uh, outside of Sofia. Um, so we we sort of arrived and uh, uh, we couldn't actually get into our accommodation. So we went straight out to the field and um, the first afternoon you sort of start pulling models out of the boxes and um, putting them back together and. Uh, you know, initially I had I had a few few things go wrong. Like I went to turn my radio on um, on the day that we got there, and one of my radios didn't turn on. Oh. Fortunately, that turned out to be a battery issue, not a not a radio issue. Yeah. Um, and then I had uh, you know a bullet plug pop out on one of my motors, and you know I was standing there ready to throw, and the motor didn't start. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's uh, that that afternoon was a bit uh, bit nerve-wracking but at least I found all of that out before we got into the into the pre-competition so mm. um I think that's a that's probably a, a a wise piece of advice is to arrive for these things more than the the day before um uh, some of the other teams have been there you know they had another day of practice um before I arrived um I yeah I couldn't get there just because of the flight timing that's um that's that's the way it worked out um, but yeah, it was uh, that afternoon. Um, you know, was was really about just sorting out planes, getting them back together, um, and uh, and sorting out the sorting out the issues. So we had a fly that afternoon. It was beautiful and calm. The um, uh, you know everything was very lifty, and um, uh, you know a couple of hours later, a big thunderstorm arrived on the field, and we all packed up and and, and went home. So that was uh, that was really a rival. Um, you know, and we were all in bed pretty early because we started the pre-competition the following day. Yeah, okay. What was the field field like? Big area? Uh, really big area. Um, so it was actually quite a, I'd say it's a 
uh, very uh, picturesque field. So um, there's some mountain ranges behind the uh, uh, behind the field, um, and you know very large uh, sort of farmland area. Um, it was uh, yeah probably one of the um, you know the more pleasant fields to to sort of look at. Um, you know that I've been to. So um, yeah, I guess very uh, very very classical European. Uh, sort of summer summer looking field um so yeah the 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 only thing that i really knew about the field going in um talking with one of the other uh countries um they'd had people who'd flown at that field before and the comment was you know this field can be really windy um and so in the lead up to the event you know one of the things that that we'd done as a team was to make sure that we had you know really high power motor combinations um so some of our motors are now um, running six cell, um, and we did that basically because if we really needed to load up, load up with ballast, um, you know, if it did get windy, uh, we'd have the power to be able to to push forward, and that again turned out to be uh, exactly what was needed. Yeah. Okay. So when you when you arrive at the field, do you just scan around at the environment, sort of take it in, start thinking? you know where's a good opportunity for lift or, or you know what do you do when you first arrive and, and and look at the space so i think there's there's probably a few things that that you do um certainly you know one of the things that i did was and you know i did this a few weeks before actually was get onto google earth have a look at the field um and have a look what's around there um like so you can do that just from a satellite picture and see you know it doesn't really tell you much about the terrain looking down but it tells you about you know what's the color of the ground around there um, and uh, that that can give you some clues about about what's going on. Um, one of the other things that um, we would often do is is just go for a drive around the field, um, have a look where the uh, you know a, a brown field, you know, a, a freshly ploughed field is going to um, absorb more of the sun, and therefore you're more likely to get you know thermals pop off. Um, so having a good understanding of what the uh, you know what the terrain is around the field, you know where there might be ridges um, that might create some some ridge lift, um, and uh, you know where where there are trees, what the tree lines look like. Um, so we really we really sort of um, you know have a fairly good understanding of you know of what's around the field. Um, I think the other thing to do is to is to talk to people who've flown at the field before. Um, you know I know a few members of the um, the German and Czech teams, and you know that's a that's a field that's being used a number of times for uh, F5J events. Um, so you have a chat to them about you know what's their strategy of flying on this field. Um, you know I talked to the uh, uh, to Ariane, um, who's been world champion for uh, a number of different disciplines, 3J and um, and 5J before, um, and he had some techniques that he liked to use on the field. Um, so I think there's a there's a number of different things that you do to to try and understand, you know that's the other reason I think it's good to get there, you know, a day before as well is to is to really be able to have a bit of a fly, um, look at how the conditions change during the day, um, and that's one of the things, uh, you know, Marcus was really um, really good at was we would we would basically have a you know let's call it a run sheet for the day, you know, looking at you know we first get out there in the morning, okay, we know that back behind, um, you know, over to one side of the field, you know, there's a, you know, the first place that thermals start to pop. 
And then, you know, as it gets to 10 o'clock, you know, we start to get thermals that we can actually chase. Um, as it gets a bit later in the day, the weather starts to develop a bit more, the wind starts to come up. Um, you know, we know that we, we're generally going to have, you know, stronger thermals that we can chase and we need to go downwind with. Um, and then, you know, as you go into the afternoon and the, the sun sort of starts to get less energy into the, into the ground, um, you know, you need to you need to be very good, I guess, at, at understanding. We call it changing gears. You know, when do you when do you change the way that you fly? Um, and so that's that's something that we um, you know we we worked on was sort of trying to understand what the conditions on the field were. Okay, flying with purpose in a kind of way. Okay, so let's let's go through each day. So you've got there, you had the warm up day. Then what happens in the second day? So we had uh, so they have a like most world championship championship events, they have a, a pre-worlds event, um, and that's for a couple of reasons. One is, um, I think, mostly to train a lot of the timekeepers because um, they they'll get sort of the volunteers um, from the local surrounding villages or friends uh, to come out and do the timekeeping. Um, so they they'll have this pre-worlds event to to sort of get the um, get the rhythm of the event sorted out and get people understanding what they need to be doing. Um, so that's that's open to anybody. So uh, everybody can fly in that. So that ends up typically being a pretty uh, a pretty busy event. I think at this I think this pre worlds I think there was about 120 or 130 people um, in the pre worlds event. Um, it only goes for uh, for two days. Um, so I guess the the style of flying, you know, you need to fly a little bit more um, hero or zero um, because it's very it's very difficult if you have a, a slightly bad flight to uh, to stay right up the top. Um, so yeah, so we had uh, two days of the uh, um, of the pre worlds event. Um, the conditions were actually very pleasant for that. Um, you know, it was generally light winds. Um, in fact, that was uh, I think I flew my super light plane most of one day um, for that event, and then the fly offs for that event. Um, you know, the guys. The guys were really, uh, you know, doing really low launches because it was, uh, um, you know, it was a very calm, calm weather, sort of more traditional. I guess what we in Australia see is a, as a traditional European FIJ competition. Um, that was the sort of launches that were going on. So, um, you know, they were down sub 20 metres, below 20 metres um, in terms of launches. And, you know, most of the time they get away with it. So that was uh, that was pretty impressive to watch. You'd have to be pretty brave. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, um, it's it's pretty exciting to watch. And then I think that you know the one thing that that's really impressive to me when they uh, uh, in those sort of fly-off conditions is you know the the lineup for landing. I mean, you know, when you've got fourteen pilots that are, um, you know, that are all very highly skilled, and you know the weather is nice, so they've all gotten away from you know from sub twenty meters. But then in the uh, in the countdown to landing, I mean, these planes are almost on identical trajectories down onto the spot, um, and it's uh, it's quite spectacular to watch that from the side and see all of these planes come in, you know, and land with you know less than a second to go. Um, so just the the synchronized um, synchronized uh, uh, view of it all is is quite impressive. Let's let's do this now, just because there might be people listening that don't understand what the F5J competition is all about just give us the quick overview of what a task looks like in f5j gliding so for f5j the the task is a is you have a, a 10 minute task um 
So uh, they they count you into the um, into the task. Um, once the buzzer goes to signify the beginning of the task, you can start your your motor. Um, once your motor is spinning, you can throw your plane. Um, and then we have a a little altimeter timer device in our our plane that runs our motor for thirty seconds. Now during that time, you can obviously throttle up or um, or throttle down. I mean, you can you can run the motor as you like for that thirty seconds. You can even turn it off before the thirty seconds is up. Um, but once your motor turns off, um, the uh, the little altimeter waits for ten seconds, um, and then it uh, tells you the the height uh, that you launch to. Um, so the aim of the the aim of the the exercise is to keep the plane as low as you possibly can, but then fly out the rest of that that ten minute window. So you've got a thirty second launch, then you have nine and a half minutes of flight, um, and then the clock counts down to zero. Um, and you have to land on the spot, and your the nose of your plane has to be on the ground before the uh, the final buzzer starts uh, to get landing points. Um, so yeah, there's th there's three three things that make up a, a score. The first is how high you launch. So the higher you launch, the more penalty that you get. Um, the second part is how many seconds that you're in the air, and then the third part is um, how close you are to the to the landing spot. So the the closer you are, the the more points that you have. Um, so in order of you know, in order to maximise your flight, you want to have the the lowest launch possible. Um, uh, you want to stay in the air for the the full ten minutes, and you want to land right on the uh, or within one metre of the spot. Good overview. Well done. Okay. So pre contest, sort of, how did you go in that? I think I came. I think I was in the top thirty um, for that. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, I to be honest, I actually I actually can't remember where I I finished up um, in that one. Uh, so the following day after that, uh, we have model registration. Um, so generally, they do model registration in alphabetical order, which means that uh, Australia always seems to be second behind Argentina. <laughs> Um, so uh, first thing in the morning, uh, we went over to the Duke Nitsa Town Hall um, and you set up your models um, and then they call you over one at a time to, you put the models on the scale, they, they take the weight, they check the uh, radius of the nose is, is compliant, um, they measure the wingspan, um, you know, and the reality is that, you know, there's not a, there's not a huge number of different models and a plus X is a, is a plus X. Um, so you know they 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 do move them through fairly quickly. Um, they check the uh, the firmware that's installed on your uh, height limiting device. So one of the rules in um, uh, they call this a, a class one competition, um, and one of the rules in a class one competition is that you cannot have motor restart. Um, so typically when we're just flying club competitions or we're flying you know smaller competitions in Australia, um, we'll let people have a, a motor restart turned on so um let's say they're you know they're a long way downwind and they're not in the thermal and you know they're, they're going to risk damaging their plane if they come down um we uh there's a setting that allows you to be able to restart your motor so that you can you know fly back to the landing area and, and save your model um for the class one competition for the world championships um that's not allowed so you've got to have a very specific version of the software on your um your little altimeter device um so they check that, and then most importantly, they give you uh, a bunch of little stickers which you stick on in front of them um, onto every removable piece of your model. 
Um, and so the idea with that is that, um, you know, once those stickers go on, um, those, are the, uh, those are the model parts that you can use. So let's say you, you have a, a crash, um, you know, and you've got some usable parts and some unusable parts. Well, you can use any of the parts from the three models that you check in um, to build, a, build another model. But, you know, at the end of the event, they, um, you know, confirm that the model that you're flying is, is, uh, has still got all of those stickers on it. Um, so that's, that's really the model check-in. So um, by the time you go through three aeroplanes, it sort of takes 20 minutes. Um, and then um, at that point, um, you go and put your models down because uh, um, you don't go out to the field and fly again because basically, uh, you know, once you've checked them in, uh, that's, those are the models that you've got for the rest of the competition. So you took five models, but three had to be registered. So you got two for practice then that you can use. Yeah. So yeah. So I used those models for for practicing, and then flew them in the um you know in the pre comp as well. So if you've got models that you you know you're trying to save for the uh, for the actual competition, like some pilots, they'll you know they um their beta airplanes that they fly for um you know for practice, and then um you know for the for the actual comp, they'll bring out their you know their nice shiny uh, mirror finish airplanes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I I used all of the models that I took over. Um, but uh, yeah, in the end, so I had um, different layups of the of the five models that I took up either. So they're all the same model, but they had different layups um, based on the uh, the the amount of carbon that's in them, essentially. Um, so in the end, I checked in a um, a super light plane, a windy plane and a, what I call my uh, storm plane. Um, and those were the uh, those were the three models that I that I checked in for the competition. What's the, what's the weight difference between your super light and your your storm storm uh, stormy plane? Yeah, so the um so the the super light um is at the FAI limit. So there's a there's a minimum um uh, wing loading that you you're allowed to have. So my super light plane um, weighs just over a kilogram, um, and that's uh, uh, you know for a four meter wingspan. So it's a it's a very very light. Call it the eggshell. Um, it's uh, it's a very very light model. Um, you know you you can put a, a little bit of ballast into it, but you you probably wouldn't want to put in too much. Um, so that that starts at about a thousand and forty grams. Um, my uh, windy plane um, is about. 400, 450 grams heavier at about sort of 1,400 grams. Um, now that plane um, has uh, ballast tubes in the wing, so we can we can stick a bit more weight into it, and then um, you can actually stick around about you know 800, 900 grams into the um, of lead into the fuselage. And then there's the um, the stormy plane, which um, uh, is about 1,600, 1,650 grams uh, dry, um, and then into that. You can put brass bars into the wings, and you can put another 900 grams into the uh, into the fuselage. So you can you can load up essentially another you know one and a half 1.1.6 kilos uh, of ballast uh, beyond that 1.6 uh, initial uh, initial weight of the model. You said you flew all those three models in the competition. Yes. So that means obviously you had variable weather conditions throughout the event. Absolutely. So. The uh, we had we the first say two days of the event um, when we got out there in the morning the uh, the weather was very calm um, 
And, you know, in those very early morning flights, you know, often the thermals, if they exist, um, are very, very weak. Um, and so for those those few flights, you would fly your um, super light aeroplane. Um, you know, one of the things, I guess, that, that, uh, that takes time is that um, there were, uh, how many rounds? Seven rounds per, um, uh, seven heats per round, basically. Um, so it took a long time to, to go through. And not only have you got seniors competing, but um, you've got seniors and juniors. So they would often do the morning of, of seniors um, and then they would do the afternoon of juniors. Um, and then they would switch the next day. So it was juniors in the morning and then um, seniors in the afternoon. Um, so, yeah, they would uh, they would alternate the way that you flew. So um, one of the things I think that's sort of quite tiring is just just being on the ball and just making sure that, you know, you know where you're up to in the, um, you know, in each of the heats, you know, what which pilot is coming up next. Um, you know, when do you when do you need to be ready? And you really need to be, Sort of organised to fly, almost through the uh, the heat before um, you know you're due to fly because the way they have the field laid out is um, they have sort of a line of tents where all of the uh, the competitors sit. Um, so I think Australia was in between um, uh, the uh, the Slovakian team and the Swiss team, um, and so you have your models either you know uh, out front or behind the uh, the tent that you're in. Um, the flight line goes off perpendicularly to the line of, of tents. Um, and so you're not allowed onto the field until the, the five minutes of preparation time. Um, they had 14 spots, um, which were each separated by, um, I would say, roughly 10 to, 10 to 12 metres. Um, so if you were out, it happened to be out at spot 14, um, you know, it was, quite a, it was quite a reasonable walk to get out to, um, you know, get out to that point. Um, and so if you've got five minutes of preparation time um, and you needed to get out to spot 14, uh, you, need to, you need to get going and, and get out there pretty quickly. So, um, yeah, just staying on top of, of what's going on, where you're up to um, in each, uh, each round uh, takes a little bit of time. So, so yeah, we um, uh, were those morning flights were, were very light. Um, there would be, you know, a bit like I said earlier about changing gears. There would be a point at which suddenly the, um, you know, the light plane was uh, uh, was too light, um, and you risked, you know, being blown away and, and not coming back. Um, and we found that the wind, you know, did come up very quickly. So on the first day, the, the wind wasn't too bad, but on day two, um, you know, the wind got very strong. Um, and so the the most common thing that you would see out on the flight line is people with their um, their little anemometers holding their their hand up in the air to to measure the wind speed, um, and so there is a you know there is an FAI limit for um, for what they uh, what you're allowed to have. Um, the, the the challenge with that is that you know that's a constant wind speed. I think it's 13 meters a second for um, uh, a sustained period. So you know a minute and a half of of sustained 13 meters per second and. And what we were seeing is that, yep, sometimes we would get that or we would even get over that in gusts, but it was the, the sustained issue that, uh, that meant that they, um, you know, they continue with the, with the competition. So, um, yeah, so once we, once we sort of got into those, those really heavy conditions, you know, I was flying my, um, my storm model 
Um, and I had that fully loaded with ballast. So, you know, going from 1.6 kilos dry, um, you know, I was up around the uh, 2.7, 2.8, uh, 2.9 kilos. Um, so, yeah, we, re we were really, uh, um, really loading the planes up. And, you know, I was talking with um, some other um, members of the German team and, you know, they were flying their models at 3.3, 3.5 kilos. So, um, yeah, the, the, we were really, really having to um, have a lot of weight in to make sure that we didn't just go backwards. Um, so it was, uh, it was pretty challenging. So basically you could choose any model you wanted to before your, your flight. You just go and grab one. Yeah, absolutely. So that's 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 part of the. Um, I mean, that's part of the the game in a way, is that you know you need to you need to read the air and then you know make your selection of of models. Um, I think the um, you know the one thing that you know we were fortunate about is that we we did make sure that we we went over there with models that had adequate power. Um, so you know when you're flying in those really windy conditions, you know often it's very difficult to to make a judgment of, you know, where is the thermal, um, you know, is it on the left-hand side of the field or is it on the right-hand side of the field? Um, you know, when you're flying in, you know, very light air uh, and there's no wind, I mean, you know, you can get a very, very good read on where the thermal is. But, you know, when you've got that that really strong wind, um, you know, often it's it's very, you know, it's a very subtle change that you see in the, you know, the wind might move over slightly, but that, that can actually mean there's a really big thermal but it's just because the, uh, you know, the prevailing wind is so strong, the uh, the effect that you see is is small. Um, so that's that's one of the the big things that we noticed, you know, sort of early on in these big, you know, in these very windy conditions, is that, you know, everybody tends to have a little bit of, uh, um, I'm going to say, sheep mentality that you know you follow everybody else because if you choose to go across to the right hand side of the field and everyone else goes to the left, well. You know, you could you could be the hero, and you might be the only one who gets away. Um, but conversely, if if everybody, you know, you've gone to the right, and the 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 weather is awful, you know, the your air is awful, you might be on the ground at three minutes, and everybody else on the left, you know, might get away with their ten minute flight. Mm. Um, so there's a there's a little bit of you know sticking with the pack um, that's needed. Um, we sort of we sort of started to find as a team that, you know, we would. If we weren't quite sure where we were going, you know, we would we would stay generally stay within reach of the pack that we could you know we could get to them if they um, uh, if they found something and we we needed to be in it. Um, but it also gave us a little bit. If we stayed a little bit away, it gave us a capability to see you know something else that the the rest of the pack may not be able to see. So um, yeah, the general launch was that. You know, we would launch on full power. We would push out as far as we could out the front. Um, and <clears throat> one of the challenges with F5J is, you know, you need to estimate your launch height. You don't want to go above 200 metres because um, once you go above 200 metres, the, the the height penalty that you receive changes. So up to 200, you get half a point per metre. Um, and then above every metre above 200, uh, you get a three points penalty per metre. Um, so... You really want to, if you if you're not sure where you want to be and you want to be conservative, you really want to launch to you know to 200 meters. Um, and so people were, when you really pushed out the front and you know you sort of you can only see your plane as a little tiny sliver um, from behind. Um, what judging that 200 meters can be fairly challenging. And if you look at 
some of my scores. I think the I think the highest I had was about a, a two hundred and thirty um, meter flight. So uh, yeah, it's uh, it gets challenging to uh, um, to make that estimation when you're right out the front there. So okay, did we cover day one? How you went in day one of the event? Well, for how many days does the event go for? Uh, so the day the event goes for five days. Yeah. Um, and um, so day one, uh, day one, I think, I think I did okay on day one. Um, uh, the the early morning flights, we had a couple of really light flights. Um, we made a change to a, a windier model after that, um, and then I think in the afternoon it continued to get windier. But I think they then changed to uh, to juniors. Um, so the seniors were done for the for the afternoon. Um, and then the following day, things start to get a little bit more interesting um, because the uh, seniors were on in the afternoon and the wind uh, wind strength had uh, had really come up. So that's when it, it that's when it really became obvious that <clears throat> that this event was going to be uh, more of a marathon than a than a sprint. Um, and talking with uh, one of the one of the other guys that I know um, uh, that I've met at other world championships. You know, his advice on this field was, you know, Andrew, just put points on the board every every flight. You know, don't get zeros. And so, um, you know, that that sort of started to become my uh, my mantra. Um, was uh, Marcus Marcus was my caller, so we would go out to the flight line, and you know, the the aim was that we were going to put flight, we were going to put some points on the board. So, in F5J, if you land more than seventy five meters away from your spot, then you get zero score for the for the flight. Um, and so by day two, it was pretty clear that you know there was a lot of um, uh, a lot of people landing out. Um, you know there was a lot of changes in the in the scores uh, just round to round um, because you were seeing people get zeros. Um, so there was there was really no point in sort of doing anything um, heroic. Um, and you know what we learned was that just getting you know if you can get a seven hundred and you can put a seven hundred. Uh, out of a thousand on the board every time you had a flight, um, then uh, you were doing very well. Um, so that's that's really what that's really what the the event sort of turned into for us was, um, you know, was just really focusing on okay, um, we're going to launch as far as we can forward. Um, we're going to generally stick with the pack. Um, you know, if there's if there's something obvious to chase, we'll go and chase it. Um, but you know, we we sort of found that with the wind speed as it was. You needed to be pretty brave to uh, uh, to turn around and start going downwind unless you were going up really rapidly because even at the the weights where you're flying, it was very difficult to to uh, to push back to get a to get a landing. Um, so day two, I think um, I think we we uh, we all sort of went up the up the ladder a little bit. Um, day three for me, I think was. Uh, uh, Probably the most challenging day, and I think on day three I actually I got a zero, um, and uh, that was yeah again because I'd gone downwind, um, and I thought I had reasonable air and I wasn't in the right quite the right spot, um, and eventually had to turn around to come back and and just didn't make it. You know I made it back onto the field. Um, <laughs> there were there were lots of people who made it into the next paddock, and um, you know even a few people who landed in the backyard of of houses in the next town. Um, but, uh, yeah, I didn't make it, uh, you know, within 75 metres, so I, I, I took a zero for that. 
Um, and so the problem once you've got a zero, so um, the other thing in F5J is once you get uh, up to the sixth round, um, you get a dropper. Um, so that uh, what that means is that you get rid of your your worst score. And typically what, what happens in a competition is that, you know, everybody's looking at the scores, looking at the scores and, you know, waiting for the drop to kick in. Um, because what you find is that the, the scoreboard, you know, sort of gets turned on its head um, because, you know, often people who, uh, you know, who are carrying a zero or something like that, you know, they, they, they will shoot way up the, the ranks when the dropper kicks in and they lose that zero. Um, so what it meant for me on day three was that, you know, I just needed to be even more conservative because when you're carrying a zero, you know, if you get another zero, then, you know, obviously you can't drop the next zero. So um, I think there were, there were not, there were not many people um, who didn't, who didn't take a zero at some point during the, um, during the week. Um, but yeah, once you, once you have a zero, I think it again changes the the mental game of, you know, what do you need to do? And for me, it was really about, okay, well, I've just got to keep keep getting getting scores. Um, and it didn't really matter what they were. So, um, yeah, so day day four, uh, I think was, you know, they, they I think the last couple of days were actually probably the most challenging because the wind was already blowing by the time we got out there in the morning. Um, you know, it, it was, um, you know, oftentimes flights were being won with, um, you know, a five-minute or less flight, um, a landing and, a, you know, a 200-metre or more launch. And I think that's one thing that, you know, when you're a reasonable pilot, you sort of get used to you're making your 10 minutes and, you know, landing on the spot and, um, uh, you know, doing sort of lower launches. So, you know, to go out there time after time after time and, and not get 10-minute flights, um was really um you know really a bit frustrating and again you know for me um i'm a fairly conservative pilot and i think you know the thing that i kept telling myself is you know just keep putting a putting a score on the on the board so as we sort of got into the um you know into the last few rounds you know we started to pay a little bit more attention to the scores because um uh, both nick and i you know we were, were looking like we were potential for the fly-offs so to get into the fly-offs was um was the top 14 pilots. Um, and so I think the last the last morning um, of the, the the preliminary rounds, um, we had a we had a couple of light light flights again. Um, and uh, I was I think my, my flight was okay. I think I got a sort of high 900 uh, flight. Um, and Nick was he was actually ahead of me at that point. Um, uh, he had a flight and um, unfortunately didn't make it back to the landing spot. Um, so there was a lot of lot of tension in those last couple of flights about, you know, is Nick going to make it into the top 14 as well? Um, so I can sort of remember we were we were sitting back in the tent and we'd finished our preliminary rounds and, you know, you wait for scores to be collated. And, um, you know, interestingly, they all of these world championship gliding events, they use um, a program called Glider Score, which is uh, written by Jerry Carter from uh, from Melbourne. Um, so that's got a it's a it's a web based program. You can see all of the scores, um, and you know so you can sit there and refresh and wait for the wait for the results to update. And um, you know we found out that Nick came in in 14th, and that was um, you know I think we were the noisiest tent on the flight line. So yeah. um, both Nick and I um, got into the into the fly offs. Glad you said the fly offs, not into the beers to celebrate. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, no, well, they, they, they come later. And, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, unfortunately, the, the fly-offs are, are spread over two days as well. So um, we uh, we found out that we were into the um, into the fly-offs and then they flew two rounds of... Um, Two rounds of senior fly off, and then the following day they flew the the, the second two rounds. So the fly off flights, um, the difference with them is that they go from a ten minute flight to a fifteen minute flight. Um, so in the conditions that we were in, um, they were they were pretty. Uh, uh, fifteen minutes was going to be pretty challenging. Um, I, I was totally ecstatic just to get into the fly offs. Um, so that was a really uh, I was really really pleased about that at that point and you know i i'd sort of gone across to um uh to bulgaria thinking look if i finish in the top 20 i'll be i'll be really happy um so to get into the fly-offs was uh was fantastic and um you know i was actually uh i, I think i was actually pretty relaxed going into the fly-offs because um you know i thought well you know i'm just going to continue to do that i'm you know i've got i've done my i've achieved my aim of getting into the top 20 um so uh uh, I'm just going to go out there and I'm just going to put points on the board and we'll we'll see what happens. So um, uh, Marcus called for me again in the um, uh, in the flyoffs um, and the uh, the first flight I think um, I think we were down um, you know about with the rest of the pack. Like I think the nobody made any um, nobody made any sort of. Uh, um, amazing move there but i think we 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 were down with about the rest of the pack um the second flight was a was a bit more interesting um i uh went really wide out towards the mountain and um uh managed to get into like really quite strong lift and went went quite a ways downwind you know so far that uh you know you start to you start to wonder whether the model is ever going to come back mm-hmm. um so that was a that was a pretty exciting flight. But the most exciting thing about that flight was that I actually got to land on the uh, um, land on the clock, and uh, uh, so I you know I got to the got to the fifteen minutes. So um, that was that was a bit uh, bit novel. Um, so I, we flew those two flights, and then and then packed up for the day. And um, one of the New Zealanders came over to me and said, "Andrew, you realise you're in um, in third place." Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of couldn't believe it. Um, but you know, the the reality was that there were a lot of people who'd either had landouts or um, you know hadn't made times or or whatever. So um, that was the that was the end of the first day of flyoffs. And then um, on the second day, I uh, um, we had we had two more flights again. It was really really blowing a gale, um, and we sort of kept with the same strategy, which was to to push out as far out the front as we could. Um, the third flight, uh, both in the third and fourth flight, there were um, there was one person or more than one person who made the uh, made the time in those flights, um, and um, that was uh, that was pretty frustrating um, because I think in both flights three and four I I landed early and I was pretty sure that uh, uh, at that time that you know I was going to be well down the well down the list. You know, I sort of thought I was probably going to be eighth or tenth out of um, out of fourteen. Um, so, interestingly, what what happened then was, um, you know, at the at the beginning of the fourth flight, they they sort of said, um, uh, once you once you land, 
um, you know, standards. Stay out of the flight line. We're going to come and collect the scores, and we're going to quarantine the uh, the planes of the uh, um, the people who were in uh, positions one, two, and three. Um, so we landed, and um, you know, we stood out on the flight line. And actually, if they if you're interested, there's a um, a video on Facebook that uh, Les, the the Australian team manager. He, um, he he recorded a video for about 45 minutes, which which covers the landing and then, um, you know, us standing around on the flight line. So Marcus and I were sort of standing there talking and, you know, this went on for about 20 minutes while we were waiting for the scores to be calculated. And, um, yeah, they uh, they called my name and um, Marcus, Marcus sort of looked at me and I looked at him and um, we said, wow, um, Oh, and I, and I thought initially, I thought I must have come fourth. So um, yeah, so then you walk off the uh, walk off the flight line, and they um, do another inspection on your models, make sure that you're still flying the same models that you you checked in, look for all of the stickers, check the firmware on your um, on your outus, um, and uh, yeah, so they 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 did the the model inspection, and then the contest director said, "Congratulations on third place." Mm. So. Um, that that was a pretty uh, pretty incredible thing. So um, I didn't I didn't well I don't know that I I fully accepted that I got uh, third. Um, if you have a look at the the scores, there's a there's a lot of separation between first, second, and third. Um, and uh, yeah, it was um, quite a quite a humbling experience. And I think you know one of the things that I come away with from all of this is that. Yes, I got an individual award, but um, you know, really, it's really it's a team effort in many ways. Um, you know, if I didn't have Marcus and Nick calling for me, um, that would have that would have not been good. I mean, I think um, honestly, I probably had the best callers in the world, um, you know, out there on the field with me. Um, so I think it really is a is a is a team event, even though I I ended up with a with a medal. Um, and you know, Nick ended up in sixth place, which um, you know, for uh, a little flying club from South Australia, uh, is a pretty impressive effort to get two guys into the uh, into the top ten. That is phenomenal. I was just sitting here listening, going, "Oh, this is great! What an adventure!" And these guys have done really, really well. So, and and it just sounds like that that variability in conditions really wreaked havoc across the field. Who, who ended up winning first and second? Who was like who, who else was on the podium? Yeah, so um, first was uh, um, uh, one of the Gallet brothers from from France. So interestingly, Romain and Adrian Gallet, um, they're they're two brothers. Uh, the um, uh, what, what each one of them one, one of them won the juniors and one of them won the, the senior event. Oh. Um, so we we sort of had you know on reflection having two brothers you know who train together and who fly together. Uh, you can just imagine the amount of trash talking that goes on between two brothers, and obviously that you know that really improves their their flying. Um, so they were uh, they they won both the seniors and the juniors. Um, and then the um, uh, the second place went to uh, a junior um, from um, from Germany. Oh, really? um, so um, yeah, so the, that that was uh, uh, that was it. Uh, France, Germany, and Australia were the three um, three people on the podium. So the juniors compete for the world championship as well. Then they don't have their own category. 
Correct. Oh, okay. oh, well, they have their own category, so they yeah. have they have their uh, they have their own. Um, you know, they can compete for the juniors. Um, the other the other interesting thing I think is that um, uh, they also have a, a female class um, at the moment as well. Um, but the females also fly with uh, um, you know with the rest of the group. So um, the you know you could have a world champion uh, female who also wins the um, yeah. you know the female event as well. Yeah. Um, so it's good to see, I mean, it's good to see the, um, uh, the girls flying. I think it's really, uh, really great. Um, and that's something that's just happened in the last few years that I, that I've been involved with the sport. You've, you've tried at world champs levels multiple times. So you, you've been in the game for a long time. That feeling of being on the top step, just describe it for us. Not the top step, the third, oh. the third rung in the step, but on the podium, like yeah, yeah, on on the podium. I mean, it's it's um, I think it's pretty overwhelming. I think it's a um, you know, it's a recognition that you've you know you've put a lot of time and effort in, um, and you know to a certain extent that you've had a bit of luck in the competition. Um, you know, there's there you need to be a good pilot, but there's you know there's also an element of luck. But um, I think the you know, the thing is just the recognition of the, you know, the rest of the community of flyers that, you know, you're pretty good at what you do. Um, so, yeah, that that part of it is um, is pretty overwhelming, I think. Um, yeah, and then, I, I mean, I have sort of uh, big gratitude towards the, the team and then, you know, I've had a lot of other people who've who've helped in my flying career, like the, uh, the New Zealanders, Joe Wirtz and Kevin. Um, you know, I've I've flown a lot with them, and they've helped me a lot. Um, you know, I've learned I've learned a lot from those guys. Um, you know, my wife, who uh, um, very dutifully comes along to these events and um, doesn't complain about you know having to deal with model boxes and um, you know go and get us food and um, deal with us when we're all cranky because we didn't make our flights. Um, so yeah, I think all of I think you know the other thing is just a, a sense of gratitude that. That you're actually there. Um, I think there's, uh, you know, there's there's a lot that goes into it other than just, you know, me playing with the sticks on my uh, on my transmitter. Mm. Now, what was the after party like? Yeah, so we we finished flying at the at the field, and um, my wife and I uh, we were flying to to France the the following day at, at six a.m. Um, uh, to go and visit a, a friend there. Um, so we we had to clean up at the field. Uh, we went back to our accommodation, broke down the models, packed them back into the box, packed up all our luggage, um, left the accommodation, and went to the uh, um, the presentation which they held in the in the town square. Um, so we uh, um, uh, yeah we 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 had the presentation there, um, and I think there's uh, there's some videos of that up on 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 Facebook. Um, that went for that went for an hour or so. Um, we had a uh, uh, quick drink with um, some of the other people that we know there, um, and then went to the uh, uh, the dinner. So uh, we got to we got to the dinner, um, and that was in a in a local park just outside of Dubnitsa. Um And yeah, that was a that was a really good opportunity to to socialise and. Um, uh, and talk with with people that uh, you know that we haven't seen for a few years because of COVID. Um, so at about uh, at about midnight, I said to I said to my wife that we probably should go because we had a two hour drive back to to Sofia. 
Um, and so we we sort of left there. Um, she was fortunately driving, um, and uh, we got back to Sofia at about um, two o'clock. Um, and then uh, I don't know whether we actually went to sleep, but we got back up at three o'clock to go to the airport um, <laughs> oh, at, uh, for a six a.m. flight. Um, and so we ran into, funnily enough, this was a flight from um, Sofia back to uh, uh, to Munich. Uh, and funnily enough, there were there were other people who hadn't bothered with the hotel. They'd just come straight from the uh, from the after party to get on this flight. Um, so yeah, so it was a uh, uh, a really long period of uh, um, uh, of being awake. And I guess I, you know, for the first for the first twenty four hours afterwards, I was still a bit shell shocked. I still hmm. actually couldn't believe that I ended up in Perth. Yeah. So no, it was a good um, uh, good after party, absolutely. Okay, now your thoughts on Bulgaria. So Bulgaria is a, um, I mean, it, it's not actually a country that I probably would have gone to had there not been a a world championship there. Um, you know, there are there are, it, it's a very interesting country. I would say it's very, um, you know, it's very pretty. There's lots of uh, you know mountains and open fields. Um, you know, there are obvious signs of um, uh, of poverty, I guess, in the sense that. Um, uh, you know, you still see horse and cart in the street. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, buildings that sort of are in need of maintenance and things like that. You know, there's a sort of Soviet feel uh, to the place. Um, you know, we found that we found the people all um, f- fairly pleasant. Um, you know, and the uh, the food was good. So um, yeah, it's a it's an interesting. It's definitely an interesting country to go to with a lot of very interesting history. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I would certainly recommend it to to people to go and have a look. Absolutely. Yeah, well, yeah. I used to have there's a lady that used to work for me that was from Bulgaria, and she used to show me photos of you know her life back in Bulgaria and and going up the mountains and skiing and things like that. It was amazing. But yeah, like you said, it's uh, you know it was a communist country, and uh, they're still sort of emerging so many years later, a bit out of that 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 uh, era. But um, it does look like a, a, a very beautiful kind of landscape. I think it's a I think it's a very popular um, tourist destination for Western Western Europe. Um, like the the town that we were um, that we were staying in, um, you know, sort of had hot mineral springs, and um, you know there were some lakes up in the mountains that were um, you know that people would hike to. Um, so I think it's you know a fairly popular. Um, Western Europe, Western European tourist country for sure. Yeah. Okay. Now, what did you learn from the event? Um. Well, I think the, I mean, the the, the one thing that I sort of took into the event, you know, was uh, the experience of a of a few past um, world championships. I think um, what what have I learned? I think uh, for me. Uh, we, I've always probably been a bit of a, um, you know, I've, I've not been a, a big proponent of, of gaggle flying or, you know, um, you know, staying with everyone else. I've always been a more of a proponent of trying to find your own thing. Um, and in these conditions, I think really it was about, you know, sticking with the group. Um, so I can see the, I can see the benefit of, of, of sticking with the group. Um, I think, um, yeah, I think that that's probably from a from a flying perspective. That's that's probably my uh, my big takeaway. 
I mean, the other the other thing that I I probably learnt is you know my approach of, of being conservative and just just continuing to get points um, is probably um, you know is probably a fairly sensible approach for a, a, a big event like that. So you know, I guess what I've learnt in that respect is that you know the plan the plan worked pretty well. Um, so you know, I think that that probably uh, you know solidifies the way that I fly or or you know, validates the way that I fly. So um, those are probably the, the big learnings. Yeah. You can always learn something, can't you? Now. Absolutely. What's next for you? Another world champs, you think? Um, well, I'm I'm pretty keen. There's a, uh, we're going to do a F3J uh, world championship trial in, um, uh, in December. Um, and so that's going to be a world championship in November, uh, in Norway next year. Um, so around about the same same sort of time uh, in in August. Um, so I'm uh, going to be pretty focused on on trying to get onto that team. Um, I've done F3J uh, Worlds once before and I didn't do very well. So I'd really like another really like another crack at that. Um, there is a uh, uh, the Asia Pacific Open for F3K, which is discus launch, uh, is on in Japan next year. Um, and so I'm intending to go across to that for a uh, uh, as part of the Australian team. So um, there are three of us who are who are keen for that. Um, so yeah, those are the I mean those are the the sort of big events next year. Um, yeah, I'm actually I'm actually going up to to Armadale on Friday for um, the uh, the New South Wales State Championship. So um, it's good to go to some of these other um, Australian events as well. So yeah, so that. I think those are the those are the uh, uh, the two big events next year, and then you know try and fly as many uh, as many club competitions and as many other events in Australia as I can um, is probably the plan for next year. It sounds like you're going to be really busy. <laughs> lots of events, to yeah, go yeah. To, lots of flying to do. Yep. Have the uh, yep, exactly? Have you been sponsored yet? No. Oh, um, not at all. So you got to approach some companies now. Get get in. Find yeah, them. yeah, maybe. Yeah, you got the runs on the board now, so uh, you need yep. a good sponsor. You know, because uh, you know the cost starts to add up with so many models and different disciplines as well. You know, you've probably got a lot of carbon fiber in your house. There's, uh, I think, I think that's actually one of the reasons that Boeing has got a shortage of uh, of carbon <laughs> is because it's mostly in my shed. So, <laughs> no, looks good. Um, though. I, yeah, yeah, no, certainly the the cost the cost add up. Um, it's, uh, uh, I mean, one of the things that's probably slowed my purchasing of planes is that. Um, you know, my models are all coming out of the Ukraine, um, so that's uh, that's been been difficult to to get models, um, and I think will remain difficult for the foreseeable future at this point. So, were there many people flying brand new models, or you know, stuff that they've pulled out of the shed and been flying for a while? No, so there's, um, I mean, there's probably, I would say, there's probably four uh, four model types that uh, you know that are predominant. Like there's that's not to say that there's only four model types. Um, you know, there are a number of other sort of smaller model types, but there are probably four main different types of models that are that are being flown over there. Um, one of them's made in Bulgaria. One of them's made in the Czech Republic. Um, one of them's made in uh, in the Ukraine. Um, and you know, I think the guy, the guys that are you know that are in the Czech Republic and they're in Bulgaria. Um, you know, there's a lot of new models there. Um, but I was actually really surprised by the number of people um, who were 
who were flying the plus X's still. Um, you know, they're they're all obviously in the same um, same space as me in terms of having to uh, having to use you know models that they had. In fact, you know, I was talking to one of the Austrian team members. Um, you know, so these models when they come up for sale secondhand, you know, are all totally snapped up. Um, just because people can't get them. And um, I was talking to one of the Austrian guys and he said that he had 16 in his shed. Um, so, yeah, they're, um, uh, they're, all, uh, they're all trying to hold on to them and make sure that you don't break them. And um, it, interestingly, the, um, you know, if you look at the, at the results, so the person who won uh, the, the, uh, the seniors was um, uh, flying a plus X. I was flying a plus X in third place. Um, the team event was won by the, the New Zealanders and they were all flying plus Xs. So it really was a, a um, you know, it was a good competition for plus Xs, clearly. <laughs> yeah. um, so that was uh, that was good. Um, and kudos to uh, Joe Wirtz, who, who designed that model. Yeah, he does a good job. Yep. <sighs> Gee, Andrew, I'm, I'm pretty chuffed that you did so well. And... Uh... You should be very proud of your efforts. Now, normally I finish by asking what what has been your favourite model, but you've been on before, so we're not going to ask that question. But a slight twist to that question, and that is, what was your favourite memory from the event? I think um, you know the favourite the favourite memory would have to be uh, just finding out that you got third, and then you know telling telling your teammate that you got third, um, and the uh, yeah, the, the the elation that that comes with that is uh, is uh, pretty Im- impressive. So um, yeah, there were you, you can watch the video on Facebook, um, but there was a there was a lot of hugging that went on after that. So um, that for me was uh, you know that was that, that was the highlight of the highlight of the event. Yeah, we had some good guys alongside you. So well done to the whole Australian team. They all did really well, actually. Um, before, how do you go in the teams? What did Australia come to the team side of things? Uh, I think we came. I think we came sixth overall. Fifth, did you say? Sixth. Sixth. Okay. Good yep. job. Top ten. Aussies doing it on the world yep. stage. Well done. Yep. Absolutely. Well, Andrew, a big congratulations. Uh, well done. Um, you know, it, it, it is a phenomenal effort. That's why I wanted to get you onto the podcast to hear all about it because I was uh, I was watching it from afar. And that, that's a great thing about Facebook is we can keep an eye on what's going on uh, across the world and sort of um, share the moment in a kind of way as well. So very well done and all the best for your future endeavours because no doubt you'll be back. I, I'm, I'm seeing you eyeing off the top step. Yeah, no, I look forward to it. It's uh, it's definitely something that, uh, that I enjoy doing and... Um... You know, I'll keep doing it as long as I can. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted. And what an episode it has been. A big thank you to Andrew Mayer. What a champion. And the rest of the Australian team. It really is a team effort, uh, as Andrew sort of conveyed. Well done to the whole team. Big fan of gliding competitions. If you've never gone to a gliding competition, go and participate because I guarantee you, you'll have an awesome time. It's like no other when you get involved with gliding. You know, it's a group event in a kind of way. It's a team event in a kind of way. Uh, you know, you're only as good as your last flight. Do multiple rounds so you can always make up 
uh, time or your performance, etc. So uh, get on board to a local gliding, your local gliding club, and, or if you if you're a member of a club, all nice some uh, some uh, gliding events. There's some simple ones, you know, uh, that you can the ALES altitude limited electric soaring comps that can run for five minutes per round. Excellent stuff to do. So hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget if you did, leave us a good review. Uh, jump onto the Flat Out RC Facebook page, Instagram page, and YouTube channel and subscribe whilst you're there. Check out some of our latest videos. Tell us if you like that kind of content. There's plenty more coming. I'll get round to getting down to the field. I'll see what I can capture for you. But anyway, lots of events happening. Hope you're enjoying the hobby. Get out there flying. Get out there building. I'll be back. Got the IMAC National Champs coming up. We might have a special guest on to talk about that. Talk to you soon.